Last week, I started a brand new series of messages on the book of Zechariah. And, um, you know, I was just so pleased that so many people joined us online because we had Snowmageddon here last week. We couldn't meet for services here at the church. And I love meeting like this with you this evening and, and with everyone that's here and some of you that are yawning because you've had a long day. And uh, maybe you're home and you're relaxed. I hope you're going to stay with me. And I hope you've had time now to get your notes and your app. And let's get started. Uh, before I pray, let me just kind of give you a background. We looked at the first seven verses of Zechariah last, night, last week. Uh, it's, the, it's the book of the prophets that Jesus quoted the most often. It's the most quoted book of the prophets in the New Testament. And it's a book about the foretelling and foretelling. Foretelling is, is where the prophets would predict what was going to happen in the future. Maybe you're familiar with the book of Revelation, then you understand that. Foretelling is truth that needs to be heard now. Now, last week, we dealt with one of the foretelling passages, and that was that Israel was being restored. They have cut where the remnant was coming back from Babylon from their, from, because of their sin where they had been dispersed to. And God was telling them to repent. They had started building the temple, but their hearts weren't really in it. Haggai was really encouraging them to get back with it. But Zechariah, this prophet that Jesus quoted so much, and this won't surprise you, Zechariah was dealing with the hearts of the people. And remember when Jesus dealt with the law, he dealt with our hearts. Remember the Beatitudes where he said, you've heard it said, thou shalt not kill, but if you hate, then you've murdered in your heart already. So Jesus was dealing with the heart. I think that's one of the reasons he probably loved the book of Zechariah so much. And this is the first of several visions that Zechariah had that we're going to look at from verse 7 through 17. And I think you're going to find it fascinating. At least I hope that I'm going to preach it in such a way that you won't be bored and you'll be like me. You're just totally fascinated with this. But before we start, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for the gift of the scriptures. We thank you that no matter how many generations, how many enemies of the word of God have tried to stamp it out, Lord, the Bible still stands, the cross still stands. And I pray that from a heart of gratitude this evening because your word is a foundation we build our lives upon. Now, there's a reason, Father, that Jesus quoted this book so much, and there's a reason that you left it for us in the Bible to study. And I pray that you will help me to teach it and to serve it up in a way that people are going to just gobble it up, Lord, and understand as well. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. Well, <clears throat> I've entitled this message, The Man on the Red Horse, and I think you'll pick up on that in just a few minutes. Three months later, we're starting after verse 7, three months later on February 15th, the Lord sent another message to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah and grandson of Edo. In a vision during the night, now this wasn't a dream, it was a vision. In a vision during the night, I saw a man sitting on a red horse that was standing among some myrtle trees in a small valley. Now, let me just, I'm going to kind of stop and explain a few things along the way. The myrtle trees are a sign of Israel. That's one of the symbols of Israel. It was the myrtle trees, um, you've maybe heard the word Hadassah, uh, that we get our word Esther from. That's also the word for myrtle. And it produced a small, fragrant flower that when it was crushed, it just released a beautiful scent. And the Jewish people used these to build their uh, booths with during the festival of booths. So there's a lot of symbolism here that Zechariah's readers would have gotten. Now, the red horse, typically that's a symbol of warfare, especially in the book of Revelation. 
But um, I'll have more to say about that as we go on through the message. But it was in a small valley, which I think the reason in this vision, and there's a lot of theologians that agree with me on this, or I've learned it from them, and that is that small valley is, is dealing with the lowliness of Israel at this time. They're still under the heel of the Gentiles. This is not the great kingdom, as we looked at last week, of, of David. It's not the great kingdom of Solomon. They're a subjugated people, and they're a persecuted people. So let's keep going. So behind him were riders on red and brown and white horses. And I asked the angel who was talking with me, my Lord, what do these horses mean? Well, I'll show you, the angel replied. And the rider standing among the myrtle trees then explained, they are the ones the Lord has sent out to patrol the earth. And then the other riders reported to the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees, we have been patrolling the earth and the whole earth is at peace. Now, let me stop right there. If you'll remember, the sons of God in the book of Job came before the Lord. Somehow or another, how I, you know, I don't know if it's literally this way. I tend to think it is. But somehow or another, not that God needs angels to patrol the earth for him, not that God needs angels to tell him what's going on. He knows everything. But we know that angels are warring spirits. They're messengers. They're, they're sent to serve and protect those of us that inherit salvation. They're especially involved in the life of Israel. But somehow or another, to help them understand, God is with them. God knows what's going on. They're patrolling the earth. God knows what's going on. And so in this vision, he sees these angels. Well, upon hearing this, the angel of the Lord prayed this prayer, O Lord of heaven's armies, for 70 years now you have been angry with Jerusalem and the towns of Judah. How long until you show them mercy? Now, remember, and Jeremiah had prophesied they were going to be dispersed out of, the, out of the land of Israel because of their awful sins. They were going to be dispersed for 70 years. So now they're being restored, but things still aren't going like they should have gone. I love this next passage. And the Lord spoke kind and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. You ought to underline that. I tell people all the time, God will speak kind and comforting words to you. Even if you've sinned against him, God will still speak. This is a great example of it. God will speak kind and comforting words. Because Haggai and Zechariah, who are two prophets preaching together at the same time, these are some tough messages they bring about repentance. But the Lord spoke kind and comforting words. Then the angel said to me, shout this message for all to hear. This is what the Lord of heaven's army says. My love for Jerusalem and Mount Zion is passionate and strong. But I'm very angry with the other nations that are now enjoying peace and security. I was only a little angry with my people, but the nations inflicted harm on them far beyond my intentions. We'll deal with that as we go on through the scriptures tonight. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I have returned to show mercy to Jerusalem. Now, remember last week we looked at this was a call to return to God. You draw near to God, the book of Hebrews says, and he will draw near to you. Don't ever forget that. If you feel distance from God, it's because you've wandered. God's not wandered away from you. He loves you, so draw near to God. So the Lord says, I have returned to show mercy to Jerusalem, and my temple will be rebuilt, says the Lord of heaven's armies, and measurements will be taken for the reconstruction of Jerusalem. Say this also, this is what the Lord of heaven's army says, the towns of Israel will over again flow with 
overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem as his own. I want you to look at one more verse of scripture, and this is from the book of Hebrews, chapter 1 and verse 1. Long ago, God spoke many times in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. Sometimes people will ask me, and I've been asked this recently, why does God speak in so many different ways in the Bible? Well, I, I can't really answer that except to say he does. And so that God speaks in visions, God speaks in dreams. You remember uh, Peter had a vision in the New Testament that uh, helped the church to see that the good news was for Gentiles as well. And Jesus had, you know, modeled that for us. So God speaks at various times in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us through his son. Now, having said that, you need to just hear my heart on this. I don't really have a whole lot of confidence in people who come to me and says, you know, the Lord spoke to me in a dream last night, and I will ask them, did he speak to you in a dream, or did you have some bad pizza last night? Because through the years, and I've been a pastor now, I've been preaching the gospel for almost 50 years. Well, 50 years in January of this next year will be my 50th year of preaching. Here's something I want you to know. Through the years, I've had so many people come and tell me about dreams or visions or something God has told them, and it just didn't line up with the word of the Lord. And sometimes I've had people tell me these things, listen, tell me these things, and they won't listen. I've tried to say, well, this is what the Bible says. That happened right here in our, in our foyer. I, I met with someone, and, and they said, I don't want to hear what the Bible says. I'm just going to tell you what God says. And I said, oh, well, that's not what the Bible says. Well, it really almost destroyed their lives. So always stick with the word because Jesus says when you build your life, not upon visions and dreams, but when you build your life upon his word, then your life is going to withstand the storms. And I love the fact that when God spoke to Moses, he spoke to Moses face to face as a friend. He gave him his word. I can always go back to the word of God, read it, look at it, Say, that's what God said. That's what God meant. My dream may have been, you know, I've been worried about something, and my mind's just, while I'm sleeping, is processing, and I have this weird dream. So if I could encourage you with anything, stick with the Word, and as we go through this tonight, don't try to mystify it. Don't try to spiritualize it. I'll try to show you as much as I can what the symbols stand for and mean. And if you're really interested, there's all kinds of scriptures I can share with you later, but we would be here till midnight if I tried to give you every scripture reference that I've looked at for the series. So God has spoken to us in these last days through his son and left us his word. Here's the first thing I think that God is saying to this oppressed people. God never forgets you. You need to remember that. That's what God is saying to you in the book of Zechariah tonight. God never forgets you. You know that God loves you. You know that God cares about your life. Now, the children of Israel have been through a difficult time, and and they would have been the first to admit it, but they also knew why they had been scattered. They also knew why they had been dispersed. Look at this passage with me in in Zechariah chapter 1 and verse 11. In a vision during the night, I saw a man sitting on a red horse that was standing among some myrtle trees in a small valley. Behind him were horses were riders on red, brown, and white horses. Then the other riders reported to the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees, we have been patrolling the whole earth, and the whole earth as at peace. God knows where you're at tonight. 
God knows everything about you. God knows how much hair you have and how much hair you don't have. God knows our thoughts. God knows my inner. There are times that I think things. Sometimes I get so caught up in what I'm preaching. And maybe I'll get something that'll just, it just rouses an anger, anger in me. And sometimes I'll go, wow, I almost said something I shouldn't have said right there. You know, God knows every thought that comes to our heart and mind. God knows you and God loves you. But when you read this, you need to remember to whom you belong. You belong to God. It's not just that God knows where you're at tonight, but God belongs to you and he's not going to let go of you. When someone really truly gives their heart to Jesus Christ and they're to, they want to live for him, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Then the angel said to me, shout this message for all to hear. This is what the Lord of heaven's army says. My love for Jerusalem and Mount Zion is passionate and strong. Don't you love that? I love that because here at Woodland, our whole deal is we want to celebrate God's love by persuading people to become passionate followers of Christ. And so when I read this, we're being like God. Now, in some of the older versions, you're going to read, I am jealous. Now, God's jealousy is not like man's jealousy. A jealous, angry man will smash things, hurt people. That's not the way God is. God, I think this really captures the essence of the, of the word there. He's passionate and his love is strong for us. But here's something else he wanted his people to know. They were suffering. You are not abandoned when you're suffering. God does not abandon us when I suffer. I am not abandoned when I go through a difficult time or when I go through a hard time. Did not our Lord and our Savior, did he not teach us? He says, you know, if you're going to follow me, you've got to be willing to take up your cross. He says all of those who are determined to live godly in Christ Jesus, they're going to suffer persecution. There are going to be times that we go through very difficult times. Sometimes it's for our faith. Sometimes if we stay hard and stubborn in our lives and we willfully continue to sin, God loves us so much that he hems us in. God loves us so much that he will allow things to come into our lives to discipline us, to correct us so that we humble ourselves and repent. The dispersion of the Jewish people to Babylon was a good thing. Because if God had allowed them to continue in their awful sins that they were doing at the time, if you want to know more about that, read the book of Ezekiel especially. Read the book of Jeremiah where one of the kings just took the word of God and burned it because they were worshiping idols. They were participating in all kinds of cult religions. The poor were being oppressed by the rich. You know, people were sacrificing their babies to idols. God loved them so much that he didn't let them continue their sin. They came to their senses. God brought them back to the Holy Land. And I am so grateful because those are the very people through whom our Lord and Savior descended. But to kind of help you understand this, let's look again at the book of Hebrews tonight. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, women received their loved ones back again from death, but others were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Some were jeered at and their backs were cut open with whips. <coughs> Pardon me. Others were chained in prisons. Some died by stoning. Some were sawed in half and others were killed with the sword. And some went about wearing skins of sheep, goats, destitute, oppressed, and mistreated. Do you know what we call Hebrews chapter 11? 
Faith's Hall of Fame. Say that with me. Faith's Hall of Fame. I mean, this is not a platinum record. I was in a man's home whose, whose walls are just covered with platinum records. A man loves the Lord. He's just a best-selling artist. He, these were people that were not getting awarded by the world. But can you imagine the welcome they got in heaven? Because they were faithful to God until the very end. Sometimes people suffer. One of my childhood heroes was a, a missionary from my home state of Georgia. And because of his faithfulness in preaching the gospel and war broke out in the Congo, he sent his family back to America. They begged him to come back, and he would not come back. He said, no, God's called me here. I'm going to stay. The church needs me that they had founded. And they killed him and threw him to the, to the crocodiles in the river there. And that's the testimony of the church of how he literally would not stop preaching the love of Jesus Christ. I want to tell you something. Don't you think for one moment God abandoned him. His blood cries out, as, as Fox said in the book of Martyrs, his blood cries out louder than any sermon that myself or anyone else will ever preach because he counted his life not worthy of saving but the gospel of Jesus Christ to be preached. So when you're suffering... Are you feel abandoned? Go to the Lord. If there's sin, He will convict you. If there's, I'm going to tell you something. I ask God to keep me on a short leash, and if He does it, Becky does. And so, and I don't want. One of my points Sunday morning. Nobody is more affected by my ungodliness more than my wife, my family, the church I pastor, the people in the community I live with. Nobody's affected by my sin more than they are. The second thing is this. People will always remember your sin. They, they'll remember your mistakes. So whenever somebody forgets that you've done something good or you've done something godly and they turn their, go to the Lord and just say, Father, I did this for you. And if there's no sin there and God doesn't give you an answer, remember what Jesus says, just count it worthy that you're being counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. People that love Jesus, they'll say that. I don't mind suffering anything for my wife and my children, for the congregation that I pastor, for the community I live in. When my son joined the service during the height of the war, and I didn't want him to, he joined the service. He said, Dad, it's my duty. I'm willing to give my life for my country. And we're so proud of him. So don't think this is strange that Christians believe this. When we say we worship one God only, the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, when we say we love Jesus, we love our lives not until the end. So when you feel like you're suffering or you're abandoned, remember God still loves you. The next thing is don't be deceived by the powers of this world. Don't be deceived by the powers of this world because the powers of this world will offer you wealth. They'll offer you all kinds of things. Now, now listen carefully. Remember how Jesus was tempted? He says, you know, if you'll, the devil said to Jesus, if you'll fall down and worship me, I'll give you all of this. And the Lord said, depart from me, you know. So don't be deceived. The other writers reported to the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees, we've been patrolling the earth and the whole earth is at peace. But it was not a just peace. It was not a righteous peace. The peace was at the expense of the people of God. If you remember your early Christian history, the peace was at the expense of the early Christians that were being thrown to the lions and being torn apart in the Colosseums. 
This was not a just peace. This was a peace that was built on the suffering of others. I've ministered, my wife and I, my family, we've ministered in, in communities where the poor were being oppressed by the rich. So don't be deceived into following after the world's fame or success or anything like that. The fourth thing, when I'm discouraged, then go to God and ask for understanding. God will help you to understand the times. Oh, I pray that God will give us a generation of sons and daughters like Issachar that understand the times that we're living in and love him and serve him. Then I went, listen to what David said. He was distressed at the success of the rich. He was distressed at what was happening. He says, I went into your sanctuary, O God, and I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. Sometimes you just need to go into the sanctuary. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said. And that, if you haven't ever read it, you just need, it's entertaining, but it's very, very wise. It's a very wise book, The Screwtape Letters. I read it back when I was working in mental health. It helped me keep my sanity, but it was a great little book to read. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Wormwood. Now, Wormwood is, is, is this devil's nephew, this demon's nephew. It's, it's an allegory. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he's been forsaken and still obeys. What's he saying? The Christian that feels abandoned but will not abandon his faith, that's the person to fear. God will always let each of us go through those dark valleys and those dark times where we feel by ourselves but he's training you, he's growing you. If you've been through basic training, if you've been through special services training, if you've, if you've had to go through what some of our missionaries have to go through where they are, they are brutalized to be able to go and serve in some parts of the world, then you understand what, the, what he's saying here. The most dangerous Christian to hell is not the fat and sassy Christian, it's the Christian that even when he can't feel God's spirit, he said, I am going to be committed. I'm going to turn pure, raw faith up to God. Look at this. You know the story of the three Hebrew children. You know how that those boys, you know, they would not turn their backs on God. They would not bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's golden idol. And so they threw them into the fiery furnace. Look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted. I see four men unbound walking around in the fourth and the fire unharmed, and the fourth looks like a God. Now, here's what I really, really want to get to tonight in this message. Do you remember when we read about the angel of the Lord, the man standing in the myrtle trees? That's what theologians call the pre-incarnate Christ. God is one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But if you go to the book of Abraham, uh, book of Abraham, I'm sorry, if you read the story of Abraham, if you read the story of Hagar, if you read the story of Jacob, if you, Daniel, I could go on. There are these manifestations of the angel of the Lord, Joshua, where the angel of the Lord appears and he talks with Abraham and says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm going to do? Tells Sarah when she's going to have a baby, she goes, she laughs and, and the Lord says to her, you laughed? She said, no, I didn't. They appeared as as, as men. At first, Abram didn't know who he was entertaining. The point is, God is always with us. And what you're reading, and this is, this is the most, and I tried to make a point out of this, and I just couldn't make a verbal point out of it, so listen carefully. What you're reading, reread this passage tonight, when you read about the man in the myrtle trees, 
the one on the red horse in the myrtle trees, you're reading about the pre-incarnate presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember I said I will say more about that red horse? I don't believe that red horse is a sign of war there. I believe it's a type, if, you, if you've ever studied biblical types, it's a type of the fact that Jesus is going to shed his blood at Calvary for the entire human race. And that's such a powerful witness to me. Now, these are kinds of things because we don't deal in this kind of symbolism anymore. Zechariah's, the, the audience that Zechariah was preaching to, they would have understand, understood this. So he goes on in verse 17 and says, Say this also, this is what the Lord of heaven's army says, The town of Israel will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem as his own. Hallelujah. I want to tell you something. The world will never have complete peace until Jerusalem is at peace. And I think what you're seeing there, because Jerusalem has never had complete peace, even when, and, and I don't want to get into this tonight, but even during the Crusades, Jerusalem has never had complete peace. Jerusalem was occupied by the Romans for, during Jesus' days. And even though Israel has been restored, you've never seen in history so many nations constantly plotting to try and destroy and drive the Jewish people into the, into the sea. We are told to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We are told to bless Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a signpost for us. And the whole miraculous restoration. Charles Simeon was a, was, a, was a pastor that I read a lot by. That wrote in the 1800s, 100 years before Israel was restored to the land. He wrote these words. Somebody told me recently, he says, you know, the church didn't believe that any longer. This is not true. Charles Simeon said it. Charles Spurgeon said it. I could go on with Puritan pastors. Israel was going to be restored because of prophecies like this. And we saw Israel, that miracle of the restoration of Israel, and the reason it makes hell so mad and why there's so many people who just hate the Jewish people, the anti-Semitism that we see on the rise in our world today, it frightens me, friends. The anti-Semitism that we see in our world today, I had lunch with, uh, some, or Becky and I had dinner last night with someone that worked in helping Russian Jews escape Russia back in the day when all of that was taking place. Friends, hear me tonight. The world will never have peace until Jerusalem has peace. It's in the heart of human beings to make war. We constantly fight with each other. You go through history, there's not many periods of history, and when they are, they're very, very brief where mankind hasn't had war. There's just heart, there's just war in the hearts. We lust, we, 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 we covet, we desire is what the book of James says. So when you read this, I believe you're reading about the restoration of the millennial kingdom when Jesus comes back and sets his kingdom up again. We'll look at that some more in this book. That's the reason this book is so fascinating. And then finally tonight, we're going to close with this. God's anger is always redemptive. God's anger is always redemptive. John Calvin called the peace that the world was enjoying at that time, and they were because Babylon was a powerful kingdom. He calls it an accursed happiness. Because it was a happiness that was built upon the suffering of others. So it's quite possible for us to, to think that everything is good when it's peace if we're not careful to observe the times that we're living in. Look at Zechariah 1.15. I'm very angry with the other nations. They are now enjoying peace and security. I was a little, little angry with my people, 
but the nations inflicted harm on them far beyond my intentions. What was he saying? He was saying, I never meant for my people to suffer the way they did. Listen, friends, don't be deceived. God is never mocked. What you sow, you're going to reap. Let me read you from a theologian that um, I said this on Sunday and, and I was asked about it. God's anger is always redemptive. Let me just read to you from another theologian. God's anger is not just sheer destructive rage, the kind of thing which afflicts human beings and leads them to smash everything in their sight. God's anger is God setting aside the evil which we sinners have allowed to invade us and take over our lives. It's the fearful energy of his holiness. It's his refusal to let sin have the upper hand. Through his anger, God eradicates sin and evil from the world. And he eradicates evil with a purpose. He eradicates it in order that righteousness and holiness might flourish. He attacks sin to establish the good order of human life. God's anger is not God on the rampage. It is the form of God's love. It is God refusing to let sin triumph. It is God not allowing his people to destroy themselves. God's anger is his faithfulness to the covenant, the purifying power of his love. It doesn't send us to hell. It rescues us from hell. And God poured out his anger upon sin upon our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when he rose from the dead, he said, all authority and all the power in heaven and earth belong to me. Friends, Satan is a defeated enemy. Jesus shamed him in the resurrection. So let me leave you with two points and then we're gonna say goodnight. Number one, live humbly because of what Christ has done for you. Live humbly. Stay dependent upon the Lord. Secondly, live confidently because of who you are in him. And when I say live confidently, ask yourself, what are you doing today? Not what are you going to do in the future. People always tell me what they're going to do when they have enough money or when they have enough time. What are you doing today to make a difference in people's future? What are you doing to make the world a better place? Is what you're doing today going to matter in the life of your family and in the generations that follow you? Yesterday, I told someone, I have no illusions. When I, if Jesus doesn't come before I die, when I'm, die, when I'm dead and gone, you know, within a, within a few weeks, people are going to forget me. But what I hope is that my grandkids and my great-grandchildren will remember. What I hope is that the people that I pastored and their children and their grandchildren will remember. And that somehow or another, I'm going to leave a legacy in the life of other people that they will carry on the way Paul did with Timothy and Titus and the way you're doing with your children, your grandchildren, your employees, maybe your neighbors, that you leave a legacy of faith in them because God is going to bring peace and prosperity again. I love you so much. Let me pray for you and then we'll go. Father, thank you for these words. Thank you for this book. Thank you for helping us to understand that, Lord, when we go through difficult times, we're not abandoned. But Lord, help us not just to stop here. Help us to come back next week and look at what it was you were calling the people of God to do under the ministry of Haggai and Zechariah and how that applies to us today and why Jesus preached from this book so often. For it's in your holy name I pray. Amen, amen, and amen. God bless you. Good night.